Welcome to the podcast for Centerpoint Church. Located in the heart of Concord, New Hampshire, Centerpoint is all about living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The message today is a part of that journey, and we are glad to have you join us. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. It's good to worship God together. It's good to look in his word together. And, uh, you know, in this, this season leading up to Easter, it's, it's an important season for us. Uh, it's a season of, of preparing for the celebration of the resurrection. And so what we're doing is we're allowing God to, um, to show us the depth and the significance of sin not because sin really is, is even worth the time of day. Like God, God's enemy isn't worth the time of day and it shouldn't stoke fear or anything like that. But, but it's important that we look at this because it, it prepares us for this incredible grace that he has given us, right? And so uh, we look at sin not to marvel at it, but to marvel at him, at Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Last week, we, we began this journey looking at uh, Genesis chapter 3, and today we're going to pick up kind of where we left off in Genesis chapter 4. So these two are meant to be back-to-back, and last week we looked at the deceptive nature of sin and how it, it lurks in shadows and it hides in darkness, but Jesus shines his light. Jesus shines his light and calls us into his light that we might be freed from the entanglement of sin. And this week we're going to look at another aspect of this. And again, the, 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 the impact for us probably will feel somewhat weighty, will cause us to even just kind of go, oh, right? And, and so we're going to give God permission to show us what he needs to show us about even our sin, my sin, your sin. Uh, And so let's give him permission to do that. So before we read uh, from Genesis chapter four, I want to pray for us. Father, uh, you know, honestly, we, we spend so much of our time running away from things like fear, violence, and death. Uh, That, that to look at it, it, it feels harsh to us sometimes, but But we proclaim today that we trust your grace, we trust your mercy, we trust your love. For in all these things, you are true, you are good, and you are worthy of our trust. And so today, we look to you in dependence, and in faith, and in trust. So would you, by the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see Would you, Father, by the power of your spirit, open our ears to hear, to truly hear? And would you, Father, by the power of your spirit, soften our hard hearts, awaken our sleepy hearts, clear away the stubbornness and the debris that resides within that we might uh, be changed by you as we encounter your word through the power of your spirit today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read the first uh, 16 verses together. And then what I want to do is I want to take a couple minutes after we read this, and I want to ask you, what, what are you noticing? Right? So there might be some things that pop off the page to you uh, that are like, huh, 
That's interesting. I don't know that I've seen that before. Or there may be things that pop off the page that make you go, oh, oh I don't know. Right? So, so pay attention to what you're noticing and, and hearing as I read out loud. So here we are. Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. They were fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Hmm. It's heavy, isn't it? What were some of the things that stood out to you? What, what did you notice as we read that together? Just uh, kind of one at a time, but feel free to share a sentence or two. What's something that stood out to you? Oh, yeah. We're not, we're not giving a lot of specifics to that, are we? I love there, there, there's It's curious, isn't it? What was that mark uh, that God put on Cain that would guard him so that others wouldn't kill him? Yeah, it kind of leaves us asking some of those questions, doesn't it? Yeah, Asher, what do you got, buddy? Yeah, that's right. Oh, see? Those are great questions, isn't it? Yeah, and it doesn't tell us explicitly, does it? Uh, from the story there, but it creates curiosity in us. Where did those other people come from that Cain was afraid of? And what was happening in that? I love the questions. And these questions are actually designed to bring us back into the story. They're designed to bring us back into the text. Uh, so, so we ask the questions, and they're good ones. But sometimes we don't even get the answers, uh, at least not in the way that we're thinking of. So I love that you're asking that question, Asher. What else did you notice? Yeah, what do you got, Mike? I was always curious as to why Cain 
Yeah. There have been times where I've read this, uh, like why wasn't Cain's gift acceptable? Well, you know, Abel's was and Cain's wasn't the, the question. And I've wrestled with this at times too as I've looked through this. It almost seems unfair, doesn't it? As if God is being arbitrary because again, we're, we're, it, it's not highlighted specifically. God's response to the offering is highlighted, but the specifics as to why isn't. And this actually shows us something. Sometimes we bring our questions of why to the Lord and he's okay not answering them. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes God, why is this thing? He's like, hmm. And what do you think, right? So, so just even, again, how we read the story and we pay attention to those kinds of questions, uh, it helps draw us into how do, how do we get to know God better? Because when we ask him why, a lot of times he doesn't tell us. Now, I do think that there are some clues in the story. They're, they're not right out there for us, but there might be some clues. And these are just clues. Like the, 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 the text doesn't actually pinpoint this as the cause, but it does give us something we might be able to, to see as a clue here. And that's um, how they brought the offerings that they brought. And so the text says that Cain brought some of the fields, some of the crop from his fields as an offering. And it says Abel also brought an offering, uh, the fatted parts of the first fruits of the, um, the, the animals, right? And so we get this sense that there was a costliness to what Abel brought. And maybe Cain's was a little bit too easy. Um, very specifically, the text doesn't use first fruits to talk about Cain's, but it does use first fruits to talk about Abel's. And so first fruits was an offering that really required trust of the Lord. Like I'm bringing you the first, the best. Like we don't know how many other animals he had, how many lambs had been born. It wasn't like he was looking over this big um, herd and went, okay, I know I've got plenty, so I'll give God some of this. And so first fruits is something that we're being introduced here to here in this story. Um, and again, is that the reason? Maybe, maybe not. It's not tied directly to that, but the text draws us into some of the distinguishing characteristics of the offerings that are bought. Cain's was some, and Abel's was the first fruits, the fat parts, the good parts, the meaty parts uh, from his flock. And so that, that clues us in a little bit. What else? Maybe one? Yeah, what do you got, Lauren? Yeah. Yeah, he, he, and, and Lauren's talking about how, how God draws in with questions. There's something in, in God's approach that, that is, he's engaging Cain even in, in what's been happening here and invites in. Do you remember, like, just go back a chapter, we see God asking questions, right? Adam and Eve took, ate, ugh, rebelled against God, and they hid. And then God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and he says, where are you? It, it's this invitation to be near. And notice, too, that, that God is present. They're already outside of Eden. They're outside of paradise, and God is there. 
It's not God looking over the fence. He's in Eden, they're out. He's looking over the fence, just checking in on them. He's present with them. We see this even in how the text describes uh, the birth of, of Cain, where Eve says, God allowed me to give birth to my son Cain. Like, like without God's hand, this wouldn't have happened. And so God's presence is there and God's inviting into his presence. And he was giving Cain the opportunity, wasn't he? And he was giving Cain that opportunity to come clean, to come into the light, right? Because that's what truth-telling does. Truth-telling brings from the shadows into the light. But did Cain do it? Wah, wah, wah. He did not, right? He defended himself. He, like, am I my brother's keeper? Those of you who have brothers, you've used that line. Did you even know it came from the Bible? Right? Because mom says, hey, what about your brother? Like, am I my brother's keeper? You just quoted scripture. Good for you. Right? And so here's Cain. He's like all defensive. He's like all like, don't ask, why do I know? And then God actually then goes, oh, with clarity, the crown, the, the ground is crying out. And so even as, as, as God describes, the, the, the blood is soaking, uh, the ground is soaking up your brother's blood and it's crying out to me. It, there's this picture of deconstruction that's taking place. There's this, this picture of deconstruction. And so, um, we look back at, at humans were, were made, God made them from the dust of the ground, formed it, and then breathed his breath in, right? Heaven and earth coming together. And now in death, it's the deconstruction, it's the de-creation uh, that's taking place, and it's returning back to the dust of the earth, and yet crying out for justice and rightness. It's taking away the humanity. And there's even these places where we're, get, we're given little hints of what's going on here. And it's, it's beast language. Did you see that in there? So uh, when the Lord is talking to, to Cain, he describes it. He says, a sin is crouching at your door. And it's wanting to master you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door. Now, when they, when, he, when they said doors, it was different than a lot of our doors. This wasn't this uh, steel-reinforced door. It wasn't a blast door. It wasn't chain link or anything like that. Uh, it, it was a tent. They were living in tents. And so if there was a beast crouching outside your door, were you feeling very safe in this moment? <laughs> no. If you're like camping and you start to hear the little snorts of the bear coming around your tent, right? That's a big moment. That's a pucker moment. Like what's going on here? Because it is much closer than I wish that it would, which is exactly the point. God is saying sin is crouching at your door. That's beast language there. So there's something beast-like about sin that's looking to claim and take. Jesus affirmed those things. Right? Scripture, even the New Testament talked about those things. It's like a roaring lion prowling, seeking whom he may devour, right? And so here we get this beast imagery, but it's not just for sin, because what's happening as sin uh, does take ownership of Cain, Cain becomes like a beast. Cain becomes like a beast, where he lures, he crouches for his brother. Come, walk in the field with me. Next time your brother says, hey, let's go for a walk in the field. Think twice. Eh, I'm going to stay home, right? So let's, he like, like just takes this beast and like lures him. He's hunting him. And then ultimately he kills him. 
This is what beasts do. Beasts are, um, are ruled by their um, impulses. As a matter of fact, what we're needing to see here very clearly, what we're, what we're intending to see here very clear, clearly is this. Sin does something to us. Sin does something to us. What does it do? Sin turns us into beasts. That which crouches by the door, which is closer than we would have imagined, actually does this thing. When it, when it has us, it does something to us, and it turns us into beasts. Beasts who live by the law of fear, violence, and death. Let that just settle in for a moment. Sin turns us into beasts. Doesn't make us more human. Doesn't make us more flourishing life. Sin dehumanizes, turns us into beasts who live by the law of fear, violence, and death. However, Jesus rescues us. And in doing so, he rehumanizes us, breathes his spirit back into us. Acts chapter 2. And he does so by taking on the violence of sin all the way to the point of his own death. Jesus rescues us, redeems us, refills us with fullness of life and humanity by he himself taking on the violence of sin all the way to the point of death and refusing to bow to its power. And then by his grace, by his mercy, by the power of his love unleashed into the world, his victory becomes our victory. His victory becomes our victory. So you think about the ways that we're seeing this unfold in this particular story and then our imaginations can go to our own lives where we, steeped in our sin and the sin of those around us, are being ravaged by fear, violence, and death. Fear, violence, and death is the hallmark of sin. Now, we live in a world that wants to whisk it away as no big deal, don't we? Uh, it's not that big of a deal. Let's just, come on, let bygones be bygones. That was yesterday. We're not looking back. We're just looking forward to a new day. We want to wink at it. Wink, wink. We want to justify it. Well, this is why. We, all the things that we want to do to dress up sin. But here is scripture holding up for us a mirror so that we can see that we in our sinful condition are being ravaged by fear, violence, and ultimately death. Now, isn't that what God said would happen? He said it in the garden. Place him in the garden, the man and the woman. And he said, you can eat from all of this. There's, there's so much life for you. You can eat from any tree in the garden. But this one, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat from that one. For if you do, then surely you will die. And didn't we even at that point as we're reading in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 leading into 3, didn't, didn't we want to say, well, 
die really? Like, come on, you're just eating something that you were told not to eat. Is it really that big of a... Our impulse is to make it not so bad. But God in his grace and mercy doesn't let us get away with that. He forces us to look. He forces us to see. And when we look and we, when we see, we, we see that sin ravages the human soil. Uh, the human soul, sorry, which is soil, I suppose. The human soul ravages the human soul with fear, violence, and death. Fear and violence and death are the things that move us towards sinfulness. Let's play this out a little bit. Most of us in here have probably not killed somebody. Going to take a, a flying leap that that's most of us here. And, uh, and yet, we know what it is to fear and even to fear death. Do we not? And so our lives can be animated by fear. Um, the fear of loneliness, the fear of rejection. You ever felt that? When we are animated by fear of rejection, it moves us. We can on paper say, here's this thing, I would never do this. But once fear gets its claws into us, it pushes us right past that place, doing things we never would have imagined doing in order to receive what we count as acceptance from the people around us. This is what it is to be driven by fear. Um, the fear of um, not going to have enough. Maybe, maybe you grew up or, or you've known poverty, and so you say, oh, never. Never again. I will always have enough. I will ensure that I will always have enough. And this fear can drive. And here's the thing. When the more fear drives us, it drives us to cross lines of morality and righteousness. And so when we are driven by fear, we, um, you know, a common phrase is often workaholism, right? And so we wrestle with those kinds of things. Look what's happening in our workaholism. We will sometimes, uh, it will draw us, uh, draw us to use people, not love people. So we use them as a means to an end, either our customers, our employees, even our bosses. I remember one time I had to really come face to face with this in my life. And frankly, it was, it was really ugly. Um, I had been working in a church. It was a, it was a large church, kind of kind of in church world we call them mega churches and that kind of a thing. And I remember going there, um, and I, I didn't realize that this was I, I, I'm, I'm like this is really this is gross and disgusting, and you guys get to listen in. And so uh, I went there because I believed that if I could serve at a place like that, then maybe I would be popular enough that I would be able to write books or people would listen to my voice. I'd be able to you know, speak at different conferences and things like that, which at the point that I'd said, that's the mark. Like, so, so running from insignificance and obscurity, like I know that now, I didn't know that then. I, then I just thought, well, this is what good Christian leaders do. They do these things. But when I had to confront the fact that I was being chased by a beast that was crouching at my door. What was that beast? It was this fear of obscurity and insignificance. And I will reach my insignificance. And so what I did is I latched on, kind of hitched my wagon to another leader who was more popular and had a bigger audience that maybe he would be able to get me what I was looking for. Oh, isn't that disgusting? Like, that's gross. Um, and I had to confront that. Like, it was driven by this fear. 
And, and what it did is it dehumanized somebody else. It was somebody else who was just the means to my end. Not someone for me to love. Not somebody for me to serve. Oh, and I had to come with such humility and repentance because that was disgusting as God showed that to me. But, but we'll all do those kinds of things, right? And so it seems innocuous to us, but what Scripture is holding out for us is it's horrible. It's horrible. And when we're driven by fear, when we're animated by fear, we, can, we, we get roped into this... Um, these chains that hold us fast of violence. We, we, will do vi- we would never dream of doing violence. But here's the deal. Violence looks different. It might not look like pummeling somebody else. Maybe it does. But it doesn't necessarily look like that. But there's different ways that when we're being driven by fear, sin is crouching at our door, we will actually participate in violence. And so when we exert uh, kind of domineering control over another, that's actually doing harm to another person. It's dehumanizing them. That's violence. Um, when, we, uh, when we're ravaged by uh, shame, which is actually birthed out of pride. So we say, I don't hurt anybody else. I just kind of hurt myself. We're actually doing violence. Shame does violence to ourselves out of the sin of pride and perfectionism. When we're being chased by the beast, we become like the beast as it owns us. And when the beast owns us, we now become the purveyors of violence and even death. So whether it's a violence that we do to our own selves out of pride and perfectionism, whether it's a judgment that we cast on another, dehumanizing another, The words that we use are so often violent words. We don't have to hit with a rock or shoot with a gun to do violence. Can you begin to cultivate an imagination? What, what sin does, how it crouches at the door waiting to own you. Oh, it wants to own you good. And when it owns us, we get pulled into this beastiness. We become like the beast that ravages us. And in doing so, we live by the law of fear, violence, and even death. And the more we clamor to get out, the more we strain to get out, the more the beast just pulls us back into its darkness. This is what Genesis chapter 4 is showing us. Not, look how bad Cain was. Whoo, glad that's not me. But holding up for us a mirror that we might see that we are cut from the same cloth. That sin is crouching at our tent doors. It is closer than we would ever imagine. And it does harm through fear, violence, and death. This is where sin leads and the more we clamor to get out the more it holds us fast who will help us who will rescue us and what we see throughout the rest of these hebrew scriptures the old testament we get some breadcrumb trails some glimmers of hope but over and over and over the answer to that question is nobody can rescue us because everybody 
is being owned by the beast and becoming beast by themselves. Through deceit and lying, through sexual conquest, through the lust of the eyes, which steals the humanity of another over and over and over again. And then there's one. There's one that, that peeks up out of the darkness into the light. He himself is the light. There's this powerful story uh, that Mark tells us in Mark chapter 5. I actually want to take a moment and, and read it. It's the picture of what we're talking about here in Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now, this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Isn't that the picture of this? Like, where did they find him? Amongst the tombs. Amongst death. Here's a man living amongst death. All the pieces are there. Fear. You think he stoked fear? It said night and day he cried out from the tombs. If you were walking by a graveyard and you heard shrieking noises coming from the graveyard, what would you do? Say, that sounds interesting. I should go look at that. This would be fun, right? That's what horror movies are made out of. The dillweed who goes into the cemetery when they should be running from it, right? But a human person hears shrieking from the tombstones and is gripped with fear. Violence, do you hear his violence? breaking chains around his hands and feet, running around in his madness, living amongst the tombs. Fear, violence, and death. Verse six, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And so Jesus, in his compassion on this man, sends the legions of demons into a herd of pigs. Mark tells us 2,000 pigs were nearby. So the demons go into the pigs and the pigs run off a cliff into the lake where they die. 2,000 pigs filled with demonic spirits are now dead. But look at this man. Verse 15, I don't think this is on the screens. Uh, when they came to Jesus, those who uh, were from the village, they saw the man, this is cool, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. This encounter with Jesus freed him from fear, violence, and death. And there he sat, clothed. Again, clothed. This brings us back to Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? God, in his mercy, clothed them, covered their shame. This man clothed and in his right mind. His face lit up. His eyes lit up. This is what Jesus does. 
This is what Jesus does. He frees those who are captured by fear, sin, and death, steeped in sin and rebellion, and brings to them life, brings to us, brings to you life. How does he do it? In the most uncanny way. In the most ridiculous way, really. Jesus doesn't meet fear with bigger fear. Jesus doesn't meet violence with bigger violence. Jesus doesn't meet death with death. No, it's just the opposite. He meets fear with love. He meets violence with kindness. And he meets death with forgiveness. And in doing so, turns hell on its head. And so sin, as it ravages the human heart, turns the human, turns us, turns me, turns you into a beast who are confined to live by the law of fear, violence, and death. And so when it says that Jesus took on the sin of the world, Jesus didn't just get a little bit of mud splattered on him. The fullness of sin descended upon him and ravaged him. This is how he frees us. He was ravaged by sin. He was ravaged by fear, by violence, and ultimately by death. And none of it could make him not love even the ones who were perpetrating fear and violence and death upon him. He took sin upon himself in the crushing weight of fear, violence, and death so that you and I could be freed. And as he frees us, he doesn't simply wash off the spotted stains He purifies us at the deepest places. And by the power of his spirit, again, think Acts chapter two, by the power of his spirit being breathed into us again, rehumanizes us. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and life to the full. He's taking us right back to Genesis chapter two in the garden, that you might have life flourishing. Jesus came that you might have life flourishing. He takes those who are bound as beasts to live under the law of fear, violence, and death and purifies them through his righteousness, through his taking on of sin in fear, violence, and death. That we might be forgiven, that we might be freed, and that we might be made whole once again and made human again. See, humans were made on purpose They were made to reflect God's goodness, glory, beauty, and love into all of creation. And they were made, we were made, to reflect creation's worship and praise back to him. When we are filled with his spirit and forgiven by his grace, we become human once again, which means by his life in us, we can once again reflect his love, beauty, peace, and joy into the world around us so that the world knows who he is and that we give voice to all of creation back to who he is. That's worship and praise. And he's so worth it. This is what he does because this is who he is. Jesus, 
son of God. The demon recognized him. Do you? There is no other way out. It is only through the purifying, self-sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ that we are made whole and that sin loses its power. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's looking to master you, but you must master it. And the human story is person after person seeking to master sin, but being ravaged by the beast and in doing so becoming the beast that continues to live in and propagate the law of fear, violence, and death until the one came who could indeed master sin. And he did it. He did it through his own death. The shedding of his blood, an offering of freedom, forgiveness, and righteousness. Let me pray. Father, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for the violence we have done with our mind, with our body, with our hands, with our voice. Forgive us. Purify us by the work of your grace and the blood of your Son. Draw near to us, Lord Jesus. We need you. Draw near to us. Forgiveness and grace in mercy and life fill us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the garden, the place of great abundance. The man and the woman saw what they desired and they took it and they ate it. They consumed it. They took their rebellion into themselves and it cost them everything. And here's Jesus just about to go to the cross celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples and he invites them to consume what he puts in front of them. His body, his blood. For it is by consuming him, taking him into ourselves that we would actually be given life. We remember that night as we celebrate communion together as a people. In just a moment, our team's going to pass the plates by and it's going to be a little cracker and a little cup and I invite you to take it out and hold it for a moment. We'll receive them together. Now, you don't need to be a member of Center Point Church to do this. The scripture says you need to be right with God even if in this very moment you cry out to him for mercy. He will forgive you. He is faithful like that. He is faithful and will forgive you your sins. So even if you experience new life even now in the waiting, then come to the table with us that we might take him in and know his life. If that's not where you're at, we just invite you to let the plate go on by. Nobody's gonna look at you weird. We just don't wanna ask you to do something that's not consistent with where you're at on your journey. And so uh, use this time for wherever you're at with him. But for those of us who come to the table, it's a tangible reminder of his grace, his mercy, his love, and his life. So again, receive from the trays as they go by, hold them, and I'll be back in just a moment. We'll receive it together. Did you guys get in the balcony? You good? All right, great. Of course, the team did. So there was Jesus with his disciples, and as he broke the bread, he gave it to them. Listen to what he says. He says, this is my body broken for you. 
See, it was his brokenness that would lead to their healing, our healing. So take it and eat it with thanksgiving today, the body of Christ broken for you. And then he took the cup and he invited them to drink. He said, this is my blood. My blood, he said, the blood of a new covenant poured out for you. Covenant is the way that we relate with God, no longer bound by a covenant of law that leads to death, but being drawn in by his sacrifice, by his life to a covenant of love, of grace that leads to life, life now and life forever. Listen to his words. He said, drink, drink deeply of this life that I've given you. So do it, take it and drink from the life that he and he alone gives. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks. We could never thank you enough. We really can't. We could spend all of eternity just saying thank you and it would never be enough. And God, you don't desire us to repay you. You don't desire us to uh, thank you enough. You just desire our lives, our hearts, the life, very life that you have given us as a gift we offer back to you as an act of gratitude and worship and praise to your name. Receive it and be blessed because we have received your life and are blessed forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me if you would. The team's gonna lead us in a, I think it's a newer song, but listen to those words. What is the offering that he asks of us, right? Mike, you asked that question. What was the difference in the offerings? What is the offering that God would receive from us? It is ourselves. The life that he has given us offered back to him. That is an act of worship and praise that blesses and delights our God. So let's do that as we worship him together. Sin is crouching at the door like a beast waiting to pounce. Overcome that beast, lest it take you in and make you like itself in fear, violence, and death. But we don't overcome by our own strength, by our own wit, by our own will. We overcome through submission to the Lamb of God, who himself gave him over to be ravaged by sin, that you, that I, might have life, eternal life. If that life is yours, walk in that freedom. Walk in that joy. Breathe deeply of the life that he has given you and know that he has mastered sin on your behalf that you might walk in freedom, joy, and peace. That you might know his love and his presence wherever you go. If you have not brought that before him in humble submission and confession of your sin, then you can know that life today before you leave. You kind of know inside of you that you have not done that. Our prayer team up here, I'll be over here, would love to have a conversation with you that you too might know life that can never be stolen. Imagine that. Life that can never be stolen. Yours today and forever. May you walk in his peace. May you walk in his joy. May you walk with eyes and ears of faith and hearts of abandon and bless our God as you walk with him. Thanks for being here. Take a little bit to stop and reflect on what God might be saying to you and how you'll respond to him today. 
wherever you are on your journey of faith, we are here to serve you. Find us at centerpointnh.org and join us on the journey of living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus.